From LibertyCast Studios and the Defenders of Capitalism Project, here's another capital idea from your host, Mike Williams. Mike Williams here, defender and champion of laissez-faire capitalism. Welcome back to another episode of Capital Idea with the Defenders of Capitalism Project. And this is Michael Williams and Mitch Whitus in studio. We're going to talk about what I consider to be one of the most important ideas and concepts for defenders and champions of individual rights and free markets to understand more clearly. And I think a lot of times people are confused by it. And I call it the battle for the mind and the best of minds. Uh, And the whole issue is about intellectual property. Uh, So are you up for that, Mitch? I might be a little bit out of my league on this one, Mike, but I'm up for it. You know, I don't think it is. Uh, in one sense, maybe we both are. And I, I hope to someday have an intellectual property expert, you know, someone who's, who's really in that field. I have a couple of people who've uh, indicated an interest in being on the podcast, but I think we can take a crack at this today, especially because I do think it's such an important idea. And unfortunately, there's not too many people out there who, who understand or defend intellectual property on a principled, consistent basis. And I think that's crucial, especially in the kind of economy we have today. We have a modern division of labor, information-driven economy today. We've, we've gone through, I mean, the development of human history has gone, you know, we've gone through this, the agricultural revolution and, and then the industrial revolution, and we're steeped in information and that kind of a uh, economy that is crucial for our own wealth and flourishing is very much dependent upon the concept, first of all, of property, and second of all, of this abstract idea of intellectual property, or IP, right? So again, we're not lawyers, but uh, I think you know, we, should, we should do, first of all, an overview. I mean, what do we mean by intellectual property? Most people, when they think about historically, property is like stuff you can hold on to, right? Either land, you can kick the dirt, or you got a home, or, you know, I own my, my cattle or horses, or I own my corn that I grew, or I own my car, you know, physical things right? versus like, well, what do we mean by the intellectual part? You know, some idea, right? So it's, it's creations of the mind, such as inventions, literary, artistic works, designs, symbols, names, images that are used in commerce. Th- this whole idea of intellectual property is covering... It's protected by law. It's covering creators, people who were thinkers, innovators, creators to earn recognition and the financial benefits of what they've created. Uh, And that includes copyrights, patents, trademarks, trade secrets, those kinds of things. And uh, I think it's worthwhile for us to to jump in and talk about why that's so important uh, as legitimate property. I like that you're bringing this up, Mike, because... I have had a lot of conversations with libertarian-minded people who will say this idea of intellectual property, it really just hinders innovation. And, you know, once you put something out there in the world, other people should be able to use it. Yeah. So I'm curious what your thoughts are, because I think that argument, when I've heard it, it is a powerful argument. And, you know... I could be swayed to that. And so I'm very curious what your thoughts are, you know, coming from a slightly different point of view. Yeah. And I, I, you know, in some ways we, we, you and I have talked about this before in terms of kind of who are we aiming at here? And, and there are times when we have people in the audience who are sympathetic with our 
argument about freedom and about liberty and about and oftentimes about markets. Uh, sometimes they have problems with the word capitalism, and we're trying to persuade people that it's a crucial idea. Capitalism itself has all kinds of etymological roots, all kinds of uh, intellectual firepower behind it, and why they should actually use proudly the word capitalism. But it's also oftentimes, like you said, libertarians, the people who are you know who are for freedom, right? They're for liberty. They 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 want lots of free trade. But they oftentimes are the ones who are attacking this idea of intellectual property. Now, there, certainly there are attackers who are leftists, people who are progressives. I mean, those are more explicit. They're like, you know, there should be no property, right? Well, well yeah, that's the communist uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> argument. Right. And, 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 you know, you could call, uh, you know, people on the left or progressives or socialists or communists all of one ilk in principle who don't really believe in property. Now, in one sense, that's an overstatement because there's plenty of people, certainly in America today, that are on the political left who would say, what do you mean? I care, you know, I like, I like my car and my house and, and I'm even okay with uh, copyrights and, you know, Hollywood people having, you know, having, uh, um, being able to co- copyright their movie or an author to be able to protect their work. Um, but they, they're sort of cynical about the whole idea of property in the first place. And there's this whole movement on the left of saying, you know, we could get to this point in society, and this is this is a Marxist ar- argument. We can get to this point in, in society where, you know, you're not going to have any property at all, and you're going to be happy. Trust me. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, the World Economic Forum and the 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 villain in chief there. You know, the Klaus Schwab. You know, he he does this, and there's there's all, you know there's conferences, Davos conferences where they talk about you know getting rid of the whole idea of co- property, and that's sort of the argument for the left. But there there's also the the argument. There are people who are, you know, conservatives or, you know, marginally free market people who are for patents and copyrights sort of on the margin, but we need to control them and we, the government needs needs to be able to say when they're good or bad for people. And then there's this, like you said, the the libertarian argument of people who are like, no, I'm all for property, but intellectual property is, that's just a myth. That's a, that's a fiction. You know, once it's, once it's out there, I should be able to use it and take it. Um, And so I think it's worth trying to make these distinctions in terms of the arguments. There aren't that many people who are consistently, again, consistently principled advocates of intellectual property. I think it's the foundation of really civilization in a sense. And and I relate it to a concept that I use and sometimes get people get confused by it. And Mitch, I hope you hopefully you'll test me on this today and ask me questions to make sure I'm clear on it. But I use a concept called there's no such thing as a natural resource. You may have heard me say that before. Now that people go, what do you mean there's no such thing as a natural resource? What about, you know, the you know, the land and the water and the air and the, you know, the mining that people can do. Well, none of those are really, I mean, obviously, if you come out of the womb of your mother and you start breathing, you know, the doctor smacks you on the butt to get clear out your lungs and then you're, you're breathing and you know, therefore you got, you've got oxygen. That's a natural resource. You get oxygen into your bloodstream and you're using it to begin to, to function as an actual organism outside of your mother. But outside of that, Everything else takes a human effort to turn into a real resource. Well, I mean, even breathing is a human effort, right? That's right. You're, you're, you're exercising your lungs. And that is, I mean, life requires action. And in concept, that means human beings to survive have to do something. Now, action means moving their muscles, you know, their lungs. A lot of that is automatic. The more, the more thriving kind of human existence that I'm talking about it requires thought. 
It requires thinking, people to figure out where are the berries, how do I hunt this deer, you know, in a very primitive economy. How do I actually survive and thrive as a human being? Well, I have to think. I have to come up with tools. I have to come up with, someone has to come up with these things. Someone has to harvest the wheat. Someone has to farm. Someone has to uh, create the food, create the shelter, create the basic necessities of living, let alone someone who could create, you know, these modern marvels as like an airplane that flies through the air and defies gravity or using an iPhone or all the things that we really do depend upon, you know, in a normal existence in America today. All those things require lots of thought, lots of innovation, planning, solving problems. And so that's the context that I'm saying there's no such thing as a natural resource. Resources have to be acted upon. Elements, chemical elements in our environment don't give us any sustenance or help us survive without somebody actually making those elements into something like a home or, or into food or into transportation or whatever it might be. So those require thought, and that's the connection that I think we should make, and that's why we're entitling this the battle for the mind and the best minds. The best minds out there are truly problem solvers on a much bigger scale. They're creating values by using what are normally called natural resources, I'd say chemical elements in our environment, to solve problems, to solve problems of human existence, human thriving. And that's the connection I would make to, to this idea of intellectual property. And so in one sense, all property... Now, again, you can get, you can get dangerous uh, if you're not clear on this, but all property in one sense is intellectual property because it requires a mind to, to think through solving a problem. And even if it's harvesting something or creating a tool, a, a very basic tool, much less you know an MP3 player where I'm listening to music or whatever it might be. So again, there's the, this, this historical argument for protecting these kinds of inventions, these kinds of creations. Uh, there's also the conceptual argument for intellectual property. Um, but I think, you know, first of all, we, st- we should talk about the history of it. You know, the fact that uh, it's, a, it's an achievement. It's an achievement of civilization to be able to say, we're recognizing this, this actual creation. You know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, from my understanding, the first, the first example is actually in ancient Greece. Surprise, surprise. I mean, I'm a fan of the ancient Greek civilization. They're the ones who invented lots of fields of study. And they actually, uh, in Athens, creators of culinary dishes were protected from someone copying that same recipe for a year. Really? Yeah. They had rules in Athens that said, if you created this dish, this specific kind of flavored dish, then no one could copy it for a year. Seems like that could be rife for abuse. Absolutely. But. <laughs> and that's, that is, that, that's the case. I mean, if you go back to, I mean, one of the examples I want to talk about in here in a minute was, you know, the whole, the whole Napster file sharing, music sharing type of thing, which was, I mean, this is for, uh, now it's ancient, right? This is an old story, but, but, you know, I don't know, 20 years ago when people would say, okay, I can now record my own music off of an MP3 player or a CD or off the, the radio, and now I, I can just share it with everybody else. Right. It's a complex topic to be able to say we can protect that. I mean, if I buy if I buy a song, if I buy you know old vinyl record, and I say now I own that record, you know that's mine. Well, that's true. You own that copy of that piece of vinyl that has a certain kind of music on, but you don't own the music. Maybe the artist didn't give up that right. I mean, they're, they it says on there it's copyrighted, which means. You don't have the right to copy it. They're the ones who retain that right to copy it. And more likely than not, the artists themselves sold it to a company, a specialization, a company that actually said, 
no, you're you're good at making music, but you can't distribute it at all, and you don't know how to market it. Well, and we see this with movies these days, right? Exactly. Where I, I think there's lots of these apps out there, or websites, where somebody says, well, I bought the movie, I've uploaded it, and now I'm going to share it with the world. Right, right. And, and the thing is, most people don't have anywhere close to the appreciation for the kind of effort that that artist, first of all, put into it, and you know, the, the fact that they might have spent you know, hours, uh, years perfecting their craft or perfecting their song. Now, whether it's a piece of art that I like or not, you know, a song I think is great or a song I think is crap, they're the ones who did that. They're the ones who came up with it, and they have a right to it. Uh, it's their product. It's the result of their effort, their intellectual and oftentimes emotional and uh, might be financial uh, investment. They own it. It's theirs. And you don't have a right to say, just because it's easy because of technology, to say, I can steal from you now. <laughs> it's not yours. But, but I, I think that's interesting, going back to the Greece example. There's, there's an example from uh, Venice. Venice is the place where patent, the patent statues really came into place. Uh, and certainly in uh, Britain, uh, the statute of Anne is considered the first copyright law. And uh, I think even more so... The United States of America, the founding, uh, founding fathers of America, George Washington signed the Patent Act of 1790. Shortly after the ratification of the Constitution, the founders recognized the need for protecting this kind of property, uh, establishing the, the foundation of the patent system. And that married with the whole idea of individual rights in the first place, codifying the, the role of government to protect rights, the, the, the relationship between individual citizens, people who are trading amongst each other, and the, what the role of the government was, was a major advancement in human civilization. And that's why we've had, wherever rights, especially property rights, were protected, you have flourishing, you have thriving economies, you have the, the div division of labor thriving, where people can specialize and do what they like and love and are good at. And it, it allows for this kind of great uh, production, this wonderful production of all kinds of services, products that we enjoy today. Um, and again, most people like the benefits. People like saying, hey, I can get uh, today. I mean, this is the, the incredible achievement of people like Steve Jobs and, and others in the tech industry. You know, you, you can have all this access to music, books, movies, documentaries, all kinds of intellectual property that you would consume at your fingertips because of the technology that's been created. But that doesn't mean that they didn't work for it and that they aren't helping the artists, the innovators, the inventors, the designers, the people who actually create this, these values. Lots of people like the benefits, but they don't necessarily see conceptually the reason to protect those creators and inventors' rights. And I remember, uh, you know, going back to that Napster thing, I remember saying, you know, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't record things and share things with people. And they're like, well, why not? You know, it's easy for you. You can, you can just, you know, rip a CD or you can just do something, you know, and we can share it. We can both have the music now or we can both have the lecture or whatever it might be. And I'm like, no, that's, that's ripping somebody off. Yeah. <laughs> people are looking at me like, you're crazy. But I, I do hear that argument a lot, right? So somebody writes a song, goes out on the radio, but somebody says, well, you know, the song, the notes that make up that song, everything about that song, you can't touch it. It's not a physical reality. It's just something that everybody knows now. So why can't other people use it freely? 
Well, everyone doesn't know it. They don't know what went into it. They, don't, they, they experience it, but they only experience it because there was a creator who made it. And does that creator have a right to something? That's the question. And that, this is, the, this is the, the fundamental argument that I think the libertarians often don't get. They're basically, they're materialists. They're turning into Marxists themselves. They're, they're basically only recognizing the material rather than the intellectual, spiritual, emotional investment that goes into something like that and the obvious, to me, the obvious need to protect that uh, so that that person is rewarded based upon their effort. It's justice. I mean, it's a concept that we, people get confused about and it's unjust to be able to say, just because it's easy to take something from somebody else doesn't mean it's yours. You know, you should buy it. You should pay them for the value. That's what a system of, of trading, of that's what capitalism is, value for value, being able to say, okay, I have a creation here. I have a value that you want. You should pay me for it. And the thing is, when that system, that system of capitalism and law, you know, the rule of law and all the things that go along with protecting individual rights, including property rights, including intellectual property rights, is what's brought prices down for everything. What's, it's made, a, made it available for so many people. You still are going to compensate someone, but they can make it so much cheaper. They can allow you. You now have, as almost a miracle, you have access to the world's knowledge, the world's art, the world's music. You know, from, from time immemorial, if it was recorded anyway, that now is almost free. But the only way it got there is because we had a system that actually protected those rights. So if we go the opposite direction, everything will become more expensive. There'll be less creators, less innovators, less actual problem solving that goes on, and we'll, we'll slowly slip back into a really primitive culture. Well, one thing that I struggle with is the idea of patents for medicine, right? For whatever. we've A company has created a new kind of cancer drug or something. And I think what you can have a monopoly on that for, is it 14 years or something like that? And then it goes out in it can be genericized after that, right? right? Right. So how does that fit into all of this? Is it something that in your mind, should there even be a generic drug that can be allowed to be created? I, th I think that is a rational concept. And it's the same thing with all these other kinds of works. They're, they're not indefinite. Now, it, what's interesting, I, I actually did a talk in Ljubljana, uh, Slovenia, and learned more about intellectual property than I had from a long time. And there was a kid, there was a college kid who was listening to me talk about stuff. And he said, what about the Mickey Mouse rule? I don't know if you know about the Mickey Mouse rule. I've heard about it. I really don't know a lot about it. So the Mickey Mouse, this is one of the problems that people have with lobbyists in Washington. You know, it's the moneyed people who can hire the attorneys, who can protect their property and their kind of monopoly on things. But if you think about it, I mean, what is Mickey Mouse? I mean, Mickey Mouse is a character that Walt Disney created a long time ago. In fact, the first... The first movie, uh, what is it? I can't remember. Uh, Steamboat Willie, right? Yeah, in like the 1920s, right? Right. right. Yeah. So Steamboat Willie, I think now, I think it's, I, I, may, I might not be uh, accurate on this, but I think Steamboat Willie will enter the public domain next year. Oh, but, well, after I saw what they did with Winnie the Pooh becoming a mass murderer, I'm a little <laughs> scared of what they're going to do with Mickey Mouse. That's true. And, and so, I mean, even Mickey Mouse, you know, if you think about the logo, it's like three black circles, right? Right. <laughs> a face and ears. That has been protected. You know, three black circles are, is protected. How can you protect three black circles? I can draw three black circles like this. Well, Walt Disney has an army of lawyers, as you might imagine, who have protected that symbol, that trademark, as, as property. And I think you can make a good argument. But this kid was telling me about what about this Mickey Mouse exception and how the army of lawyers at, at Disney have, have done this extension. You know, have said, we're going to keep extending. We're going to allow 
Disney to continue to profit off all these different things for so long. There, there's another rule for that. It's actually the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act. I don't know if you do you remember oh, I, who Sonny Bono is? I know Sonny, Sonny and Cher. That's you know? right. And then right. Sonny became you, a babe. congressman. That's right. That's exactly right. Sonny became a congressman and he advocated for this kind of extension. Uh, you know, maybe he had a connections to the entertainment industry, obviously, in Hollywood and so forth. He liked Disney World. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it, you know, the Mickey Mouse rule, otherwise known as the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act, extended copyright terms in the U.S. by 20 years generally. Now, it depends on whether the, the product or the value that was created was by an individual or by a company. There's a, a complex set of rules, whether it's you know, extending it for the entire life of the author plus 70 years, if it's like a literary work, or if it's like in a sense a co- corporate auth- authorship. You know, it's the shorter of 95 years from a publication or 120 years from creation. And this goes back to your point about drugs and 14 years versus, you know, now it can be genericized. I mean, those may seem like arbitrary rules. And I, I would grant that maybe in some cases there are. I think it's partly because we don't have a clear rule of law today, and we don't have this idea of what the purpose of the law is. Enough. We have remnants of the Constitution being enforced. And I, I think actually the the legal system is probably better than the other branches of our government today when you think about Congress or the executive branch. I mean, they still do recognize the rule of law. But theoretically and at the academic level, there's this erosion of what the purpose of the law is in terms of that. And I think that can pollute the idea of, okay, well, what's a rational basis for how much time, you know, whether it's uh, you know, a certain number of years beyond the author's life or the inventor's life, how long their heirs or their company can continue to profit from it. But I think it's rational. I think it's rational to say this person is the inventor. They should be in justice, be the ones who are rewarded and profited from their value that they created. And then, you know, potentially for their heirs or some, some time period after that. I don't have that kind of expertise to be able to say, okay, this is, it should be 25 years versus 20 years versus 10 years. But I do think it's reasonable to say that, uh, that that kind of property and the ability to profit off of it is reasonable. Um, now, obviously, there's some, some great test cases. Like you mentioned, drugs. I mean, people uh, talk about this. Well, it's not, it's not really human to charge thousands of dollars or hundreds of dollars for a drug that actually people need. People need this today, and the people are dying if they can't afford to pay for it. You know, what do we do about that? Well, the proper answer is to say protect rights, protect people's property rights and their intellectual property. That's how you get these values in the first place. Before you had any kind of structure, legal structure to protect those rights, you never had these life-saving inventions. The only way that you get this kind of value is you protect people's rights. Then you get more innovation, better drugs. You get better values that are being created by, because people have that incentive. And in justice, they're protected with their property. But I think, and tell me if I'm hearing you incorrectly, Mike, but it seems like what you're saying is that after an appropriate amount of time, these things do enter the public domain. That's right. So how do you know when you give up ownership? I know you said, you know, you don't know if it's 20 versus 25 years versus 14, but I mean, what's the principle behind that? The principle is the inventor's life, right? Their life, their product. That's the principle, right? So if they, you know, when they die. Property, yeah, well, that's, that's where the starting point is. And then the question is, does anyone in their family or, or their, the rest of their product, I mean, if I created a company, if I created a company to produce a drug, let's say I'm the one who came up with the cure for cancer or for whatever disease you can think of that really is a great value, I should 
be the one who's rewarded. It's my product. I, could, I don't have to bring it into the world, right? I could keep it all to myself. I could say, I've cured cancer. Guess what? No one gets it, right? <laughs> That'd be very cruel. <laughs> it, well, it, people might say it'd be cruel, but that's what we're incentivizing if we take away the, that person's, first of all, the justice in recognizing their creation. That's the first thing. Second of all, their right to profit from it. If, if we don't do that, you will have more and more people. I mean, this is part of the analogy, of the metaphor of the atlases of the world going on strike. The people who are truly the problem solvers, who can really benefit society in a, in a massive way by their inventions saying, you know, screw you. I don't need to do this. I don't need to come up with these, these uh, solutions to your problems. I'm going to hold it to myself. So what about, though, you know, Merck, let's say, goes out and creates a new drug that can help cure a type of cancer shouldn't Merck just own the rights to it for the rest of the life of the company well again that's that's what they're talking about how many years what's rational it, it, whether it's individual authorship or in, innovation or if it's a company a corporation but what are you talking about that's what i want to know i think there's a reasonable basis in the law to to make those distinctions that there is a distinction saying that a company can't hold, you know, mer- in perpetuity. In perpetuity. No, I think that's right. Okay. No, absolutely. And so I think generally the whole regime we have in terms of intellectual property law in the U.S. is rational. Now, again, I can't, I, I don't have that legal background or philosophical background, frankly, to be able to say this is the correct number of years to protect. I do think uh, you can make a moral and a practical case for saying there should be a certain number of years beyond an individual's creation, their life, and their their family, uh, as well as a corporation. But at some point it ends and it does go in the public domain, whether it's you know a literary piece of work or a piece of art or a drug or whatever it might be. But we want more of those values, right? We want more problems solved, and we do that practically by giving people the incentives, the profit incentive, to, to be able to keep what they've earned, but most importantly, morally, to say we're acknowledging it, that it's theirs. They don't, they don't have an obligation to create for humanity. Now, that, that does bring up the whole moral issue, right? And that's what a lot of people would say. No, you should sacrifice. If you can create a, a cancer-curing drug, you owe it. It's your obligation. It's your moral duty to provide that to the world. And I don't agree with that. I don't think capitalism, anyone who's a consistent defender of capitalism agrees with that. You as an individual don't owe the world squat. I agree with you on that, Mike. I think where I'm coming at you is on the other end from the libertarian perspective. So, okay, you've created the most masterful book the world has ever known. And from what you're saying, you own the rights to that for the duration of your life. And then after that, at a certain point, it it enters public domain. But as the creator of that, can't you say, well, I bequeath this to my son and he owns the rights in perpetuity. And that child does that for his child. So it never enters the public domain. Couldn't you say that as the creator of that work? You could say that, but that, that is the job of a legal doctrine and a legal scholar to say this is, what is, this is what's meeting the test of morality, justice, and the practical argument of how we incent that kind of behavior in terms of creating actual values versus creating you know, sort of a dynasty of someone saying... Now, that's different if, if, if you say... Um, Walt Disney, for example, just because he came up, you know, Walt Disney uh, creates Mickey Mouse and Steamboat Willie and all these values that people like and this entertainment that people want, uh, not to mention all the other things that he created. And 
he's earned money. He's earned money from those. And people have paid him in a few, uh, a free market, mutually voluntary exchange. And he's continued to accumulate that money. He hasn't spent it. It's his. We're recognizing that money is his. At some point, someone says, okay, I want to I use you know, the idea of Steamboat Willie or the, the three circles and the, the black circles and the Mickey Mouse logo. He and his family at some point should forfeit. Now, again, I, there was a libertarian argument that this kid in Ljubljana was, was arguing with me, saying, you know, what is that? I'm like, at that time, I didn't have any much better of an answer that I do now. I think I did persuade him to say, no, the individual who's the creator, we want to, we want to recognize injustice, their right to their property. And that's where it gets, the devil is in the details about, you know, what's the right amount of time. Does a house ever enter the public domain? You mean if I've built a house? If you've built a house, you own it. And you've Are you talking about it. the built the design? No, I'm just saying uh, you own the house. Yeah. Maybe you des- maybe your family designed it. Maybe they didn't. But you've owned the house. You pass it down to your child. They pass it down. Does that, ever, does that house ever enter the public domain? I don't think so. I think that's a really dangerous thing to say. So intellectual property does, but physical property does not. I think that's a rational distinction between and, those two. And what is the distinction? One is, uh, it's an idea, a design, not a physical, until it's actually created. And that, that's the other part of intellectual property law, and I, I'm glad you brought that up, because the law does recognize that you have to act upon this idea. You can't just say, I mean, and this is, and this is where it's gone wrong in some places. People come up with all these, there's patent lawyers, patent trolls, I don't know if you've heard that. Oh, term. yeah, the businesses out there that are just in the business of doing lawsuits just to make money, right? right? That's all yeah. they do, and, that, and that's, again, partly because our legal system has become polluted by the idea of what property is and isn't. There are people coming up with all kinds of questionable patents about, you know, some random thing. I've heard that, you know, the, the most egregious example I've ever heard before is that someone patented the way to swing on a swing set, you know, the way a child actually is going to swing on a yeah, there's a methodology how to do that, and you know that person supposedly is uh, trying to protect that. It does get complicated. I'm not saying it doesn't. Anything that's 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 dealing with these kinds of abstract ideas can. That's why it's important to have the proper concepts. And I think one of them is this idea of the distinction between intellectual property versus physical manifestations of that intellectual property, and the idea that you have to act upon it. You can't just say, okay. I, uh, for example, in the case we gave before, I, I'm the person who created a cure for cancer and I don't do anything with it. I'm that butthead that you, I don't know, remember the, the word you use, but someone who's, you felt like a cruel, cruel person, that person yeah. who's, you know, really cold and cru- cruel and wants to, people to keep dying of cancer. I've created it, but I have, I haven't made an actual formula and I'm not attempting to profit from it. I'm just saying I've got it. And then someone else comes along and comes up with the exact same formula. The law will say that second person who's come up with the formula and is now selling it can profit from it. They're, they're not going to protect the originator's idea because he's not acting upon it. He's not, this is a mind-body thing that, again, makes sense to me. The law needs to protect both the intellectual part of it but the, also the manifestation of it. And if a person isn't going to act upon it, this is the same principle in common law where if you have, if you have land but you don't put any fence around it, you don't improve it, you don't work the land, you, don't even, you live there, you don't protect it, you don't do anything with that land, over time the law will say it's no longer your land. You didn't act like an owner, therefore you don't own it. And I think there's something that same same concept in this example of a of a, a new drug. If you're not actually doing something with that new drug or that new invention, then you no longer own it and someone else has a right to profit from it. 
Well, I don't want to keep getting into gotcha questions, Mike. That's really not what I'm going for. But I do want to try to understand this distinction because I'm still a little confused. Legitimately, not trying to play devil's advocate, actually, which I normally do. Yeah, and I want you to. And I, and I think this, this topic, I mean, again, this is why I set it up to say that we should have someone who's more prepared to give the detailed answers, if they can, about why a certain amount of time makes sense or not. But go ahead. Well, yeah, and I don't want to get into certain amount of times, but what I'm saying is you create a song, you sing the song, you've brought it into fruition. How is that any different than having a house that you continue maintaining and property around it you continue maintaining? You've brought that idea of what you want that property to look like into fruition, but it's yours in perpetuity or until you sell it. Well, and this is why you call, this is why you have a rational basis for a copy of something and a you know physical copy of something isn't the same thing as the design of the house. The architect who comes up with the design of the house has an interest in the actual plans for it versus no, you own the actual house. So in the case of a song, you own the medium, you own the, you own the actual, however it was recorded on that individual piece of plastic or whatever it was recorded on, that vinyl piece of record or whatever it is, you own that. That's yours. And you can play it as much as you want. That's what a copyright does protect. It's yours now. You paid for it. You can play that piece of music on that medium as much as you want. Now, the the cool thing, or maybe in some people's minds, in my own, you know, I've, I've been like everyone else, I think I bought this on 8-track, and people don't even know what 8-tracks are, but I bought this song on 8-track, then I bought it on a cassette, then I bought it on a CD, then I bought it on uh, you know, something else, and now uh, I have it on my iPhone, and I pay $10 a month to, to you know, Apple Music or whatever. <laughs> Haven't I paid for this song enough? <laughs> I'm, I'm sympathetic with that, but what you did was you bought it on that particular medium, and you had the right to that piece of property, not the song itself. But what we hear today, we actually hear about artists selling their song catalogs, right, to another company. But what you're saying is if that person, after they died, after some amount of time that we're not going to get into, some reasonable amount of time, that song would go into public domain. So a company wouldn't even own it. But we're not saying that for physical property. And that's what I'm trying to understand is the distinction that I still don't quite get. Well, that's why they call it property versus intellectual property. There's There's a difference between the two. There is clearly a difference between a physical manifestation, the property, versus intellectual property that we call a copyright, patent, trademark, and so forth. But both require the mind. They do. But in different ways. In different ways. Okay. I'm still not totally convinced, Mike, but we're getting there. We're getting there. I'm going to stop <laughs> I'm my I'm doing my best. My and and hopefully, I mean, I, I think that's worth uh, you know, stopping, just reminding people that this is the kind, of, the kind of thing we talk about on the Defenders of Capitalism Project. There are probably out there, people out there who are listening who are saying, well, you know, there's, there's maybe a good argument there, maybe not. Um, maybe certainly, you know, dyed-in-the-wool libertarians will say, no, we should, you know, once it's out there, I should be able to have it. This is the kind of topic we talk about and grapple with and we think is important to grapple with. Again, I say that it's crucial. If you want to have life-saving drugs, if you want to have uh, incredible art, if you want to have uh, all the values that we have in a modern economy as we do today, the kind of wealth we have, you should check your premises about this and really understand what's just, what's right, what's moral, uh, and what's, what's going to you know, be the, a system that actually encourages that kind of behavior, that kind of invention, innovation, problem-solving behavior for the future. And with that, I think we maybe have beat it to death, at least for today. Well, I've got 70 more questions, Mike, but I'll hold them. <laughs> All right. Well, hold them for that next time, and, and okay. hopefully we'll have someone who's uh, a legal 
scholar on intellectually property uh, sometime soon. And with that, we'll be signing off. Please like, share, you know, try to help us get the message out. Uh, one of the things I wanted to mention is people should be signing up for our on our Defenders of Capitalism website. Please sign up for our, our email list. We don't inundate your email box, at least not yet. <laughs> and you never will inundate. No, no. We're, we're wanting to uh, engage with our audience, have them spread the message or or engage with us, give us better ideas on things to talk about, challenge us as Mitch has done today. And hopefully you'll continue to help us spread the message on the moral case for free markets and capitalism. And we'll look forward to you on the next episode. <laughs> <laughs>